Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jovanka Vukovic, a filmmaker who spent her career steeped in the horror genre. She's worked in visual effects, she edited Room Work Magazine for several years, and she contributed a segment to the female-fronted horror anthology XX a couple of years ago. Her first feature, Riot Girls, a punk-inflected thriller set in a 1990s world where a plague has wiped out all adults and left the teenagers to establish their own post-apocalyptic society, arrives on VOD today, October 1st, and you're going to want to check that out. Yovanka picked Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow's cult horror western starring Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein, who'd all been previously seen together in Aliens, as a band of nomadic outlaws who roam the West by night, taking what they want and leaving chaos in their wake because they're vampires. Adrian Pazdar is Caleb, an unfortunate young cowboy yanked into their world by the sad, seductive May, played by Jenny Wright. What happens after that is both emotionally and literally very messy, and also gorgeous to behold, because Bigelow was out to make the definitive punk vampire film, and she more or less succeeded. Barely released theatrically in the fall of 1987, Near Dark wound up finding true immortality on video and cable, and though it's receded in recent years, there are still plenty of us who love it and would like to spend an hour talking about it. So, here we are. This is someone else's movie. You know, whenever you get asked to do these these kinds of podcasts where you where you're supposed to talk about somebody else's movie, your first impulse is to want to talk about something important. Like you go to your Criterion collection yeah, and you yeah. go, hmm, like you know, has anyone talked? And you check Norm's list and goes, anyone talked about Night of the Hunter? Like you or, or Oni Baba? And you feel like you you're you're supposed to talk about something like really important, right? And um, you'd be and, amazed how many people back down from that. Like almost immediately, like I've gotten emails saying, oh, you know what? I'd love to do this, but I don't think I can. And I'm always Sure you can. You know, we still haven't done an Ingmar Bergman film. Not one. Nobody's picked really? one. Really? Yeah. Maybe because they're sort of intimidating. I think movies, so. Yeah. You know? And I think everybody feels that you know they should save that for some like someone else is going to want this. Oh really? Uh, I mean, I now that you mentioned Bergman, you know, The Hour of the Wolf would have been great to talk about it. Yeah, His only yeah. only horror film. Um, but you know, that's not to say that uh, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark is not important because it obviously is, or else I wouldn't have chosen it. Sure, and I I'm guess glad you did. Too, yeah, because it's one that again, you know, this is two hundred and forty six episodes, and no one's. I think we did. No, we've done one Bigelow, but it was Point Break, right? Which is her. And yeah, it's masculine and, and sort of self-parody, but it's also her, the the one with the least of her personality to it. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that no one has chosen it. Um, it's an important film to me, obviously, uh, as a woman filmmaker. It's I think the first movie that I ever saw that had a woman's name attached as a director. Really, and you you can imagine how you know how uh, life changing that was, right? Um, because most of the you know. 90% of all films in the last 100 years have been made by men. So it sure. just goes to follow that you're not going to see very many women's names. And particularly in the horror genre, you know, as a kid growing up, fascinated by by horror movies, um, just became a, a, a compulsion of mine to watch as many of them as I could. And um, it was very rare to see a woman's name at, at the end of these film credits. And so it was, like, directed by Catherine Bigelow, like, Wow, and obviously there was like uh, Mary Lambert and Pet Cemetery, and 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 later on um, Mary Heron, American sure, Psycho, yeah. but there were very few. And you know, as I got older, I discovered you know the exploitation films of Doris Wishman, and you know, and but but you know, as a kid, it was all oh, yeah. 
the 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 iconic uh, John Carpenter and Sam Raimi and Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci and all these men, right? Sure. Um, Wes Craven. Uh, <laughs> and, and in 1987, masculine movie making. You know, this is like post Rambo, First Blood Part Two, and and Cobra, I think, and all the Stallone and, and Schwarzenegger. Uh, and even uh, Charles Bronson, right? Like, mm-hmm. It was all this one-man army stuff. Which, I don't get me wrong, I love those movies. Like, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, First Blood, you know. First um, Blood's great. Ted I mean, Koch of, you know, I'm a huge, huge fan. Yeah, totally, obviously totally different movie than the sequels, right? Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. is the reason why Ted didn't want to do the sequels. Um, I, I, I read his book too, a couple yeah. of years ago on the director's chair, director's cut, and uh, he talks about that. Uh, and look, one of my all-time favorite m- movies is is Predator. I love Commando. I-, I love these kind of very masculine, macho movies. Maybe that's something that I share in common with Catherine Bigelow is that, you know, I often get told when I'm directing <laughs> that my choices are too masculine. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, probably one of the most unfeminist things you could say to me. <laughs> but, I mean, these are just the things that I like, right? I'm, I grew up watching horror movies and riding motorcycles and reading comic books and watching these kinds of movies. Um, And my dad was a big Charles Bronson fan, and he loved, like, he really loved ninja movies and stuff. So I I got to, like, you know, and and obviously Seanor, Chuck Chuck Norris. Um, I grew up with... The canon canon. A variety, right, of, like, you know, horror, action films, cult films, you know. um, And so all of those things, all of those... um, Types of movies have found their way in some way into into Riot Girls, the the film that I recently made. Mm-hmm. Um, and but Near Dark, um, you know, yeah, it had a huge huge effect on me because a it was directed by a woman, and b it was so different than everything else that I was seeing around the time. It it felt different. Look, I mean, it came out at the same time as Lost Boys. Yeah, just a couple months later. Right, and and it was you know. It was, I guess it was similar to when John Carpenter's The Thing came out and it was, that movie was up against E.T. and people were just not ready for it. They were just not ready for uh, angry aliens, you know, and downbeat endings. Yeah, it was thesis and antithesis. It was really amazing to see that happen. And then it happened, it happens a few times and sometimes it's just because studios, you know, like Deep Impact and Armageddon, right, where the studios have the same project in development and then just each, nobody blinks. And then you get two movies that are, Effectively the same movie, but with, yeah, with with ET and the Thing, it's the same studio releasing completely opposite films, and the body politic of like the audience just rejecting one, and then just months later, the video comes out and people start to realize what they missed, and mm-hmm. it builds up a cult that is, I would think, arguably stronger than ET now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it nearly decimated the Thing. Nearly decimated John Carpenter's career, right? Yeah. Well, he went to Starman. And <laughs> trouble. He stuck with studio stuff, but he changed his game so radically. Yeah. Yeah, and and but then look at you know people look if you look at the films, people people celebrate and remember and rewatch the Thing over and over again. And in some ways, similarly, Lost Boys has been reduced to a sexy saxophone meme, yep. and Near Dark remains a beautiful and wildly original cult classic. Classic. So, uh, you know, and, and that's because um, of its execution. Like on the page, like her and, you know, Catherine and Eric Red had, had both written two, two films together that, you know, one was for Eric to direct and one was for her to direct. And, and um, you know, on the, from, from uh, the script, they wanted to do a, uh, 
um, a cowboy movie, right? Yeah. They wanted to do a western, a western vampire film, and so the result, the resulting film was like a blend of genres, right? It's, it is a horror movie, but it's also a, a western, and it's also an action film, sure. um, and it's also a romance. Yeah, and so it has this, like you know, this really unique kind of um, feel to it when you watch it. It's otherworldly. She uses a lot of a lot of mediums and close-ups, and um, it's just very intimate. And and it's intimate in a way that puts you in the place of those two characters, as as opposed to like a, the way a man might shoot this those scenes or this movie, the, the way a man might execute it. Um, I think Catherine's um, handling of the material was very like almost maternal, and you know. Um, it's funny because they, the producers, loved the script, but I think they hired her with the with the proviso that they could fire her after the day day one of yeah. the dailies. Yeah. It was a five day thing. Where <laughs> if they didn't like her at the end of the shooting week. Yeah. They, could, they could drop her. They could fire her, and you know it was her first solo feature. She had made one other film, you know, Loveless, which yeah. again, cult movie that never really got its due. I keep waiting right. for it to be rediscovered. It's been. What forty years now? And I think so. It hasn't happened, but and yeah, it's like a, a meditation on biker movies and Willem Dafoe, an early. Yeah, Willem I Dafoe think it movie. might might have been even one of his first. I think so yeah, yeah I, mean, I think his first like lead anyway. Yes, yes, um, and so then you know through this brilliant casting, so they have this great story about this vampire kind of family, two families really, sure. and the boy, you know, the, the farm boy that gets caught up and or lured into the vampire lifestyle who has to ultimately make a choice of you know whether or not he's going to join their family or or protect his his blood relatives right um, so on it's ostensibly a very you know simple concept um, but just so well executed and then the casting right is just so genius and I think a lot of people believe that or want to believe that James Cameron had a lot to do with that but it was in fact um, Bill Paxton had read the script and thought it was really cool and then he passed it on to Lance Henriksen and it sort of found its way through the aliens cast right. uh, you know, without James Cameron's help. So, and I think when she realized and she was like, she was auditioning all these people uh, from Aliens, she, Catherine asked James Cameron if it was okay that she used so many, so many actors from, from Aliens. And of course she acknowledges it in, in the film, there's a, mar- on the yeah, marquee. It's in the background. Yeah, Aliens is, is uh, on the marquee. So, and so she got this incredible ensemble cast who just brought everything to their roles. And Lance Henriksen is the type of guy who he researched like crazy by like... Yeah, no, he came up with his own... He's the only one in the entire film who came up with a full backstory, including why his hair is black. Yes. Which is so great. Yeah, he's the guy who decided that... officer or something. Yes, that he was turned on the battlefield by, you know... um, some vampire and, um, you know, and he, but he drove around like in a car. He, he went and got these like acrylic nails put on and then broke them with, broke them with pliers, right? So they were all jagged and then like drove around and picked up hitchhikers for like weeks. Yeah. Looking like, you know. <laughs> it's just such a weird story. I, right? I do love it though because he is, uh, I, I've, I've met him. He's, he's, oh, he's a wonderful he's, guy. Yeah, he's warm and soft and gentle. And also he can turn on a dime and turn that thing on. And I can just imagine him 
in his prime in 1986 or seven, six or seven driving yeah. around doing this. And it's like, I'm so... He probably would have been shot in the face. I'm, I'm amazed he wasn't hurt. Me too. He said that he was, uh, mostly people were terrified of him. Like yeah. He'd pick up hitchhikers and then they would just look at him and think, this guy's going to slice me into ribbons. And yeah, they yeah, were yeah, yeah. scared and they would ask to be let out. <laughs> so Yeah, and apparently he paid them. <laughs> he paid them? I, I, I didn't know it, that yeah. detail. It may okay. or may not, it's on the IMDb. It may or may not be true. But apparently he just gave him, he scared one guy so badly that he just emptied his wallet, gave him eight bucks <laughs> and said, thank you, I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> But he is, he is just, he's the sweetest guy. And I can picture this, and also I'm really glad he's still with us and that this did not end with someone trying to grab the wheel and push them back into a, you know, off the road or something. Right, but, yeah, he's amazingly gentle. He's a gentle, I've spent a, a lot of time with mm-hmm. him uh, in the past as well and um, at horror conventions and stuff, just hanging out. And he's, he's incre- incredibly gentle but takes takes his craft so very oh, yeah. seriously. And none of that is in the film. Like, you don't see any of the warmth. Ever. No. He's, Just a, like a, a little. Only a in the, humor. Right? Oh, yeah, and only in the sense that he is the patriarch of this family, and the only warmth that comes through is his obligation to, his sense of duty to protect them at all costs. So to me, there's a, mm. there's a bit of warmth that comes with that because he's protecting his... Um, um, cubs, yeah. you know, yeah. like, you know, he's he's protecting them. So, the, and that's one of the things I like about the, all the characters. They they're, they they never sort of paint them as just, they, yes, they're a rag ba- ragtag uh, group of, of uh, vampire renegades, you know, um, and and they are killing people to survive, but also they they each have their own things that they're struggling with, except for Severin, who's just just a psycho cowboy, right? And he is just like toxic masculinity in every way, right? But that's what makes him so wonderful, especially yeah. when he gets you know his scenery chewing uh, scene scenery. at the at shit kicker heaven, right? Like he's. You know, Catherine Bigelow just let him go nuts, and he ad-libbed a lot of those lines, and it's just, you know, one of the best scenes of the movie. Um, yeah. Now, and it's yeah. a pleasure to watch them together again after Aliens, but it's also, on my most recent viewing, I realized, oh, yeah, they're, they're like, Henriksen was was all warmth and, and, and maternal care in Aliens, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not allowed to harm or come to harm, but even when, he, even when he rolls out his own rules, he's very soft and gentle about it. He never raises his voice. He's very calm and childlike, mm-hmm. and uh, here he plays the absolute opposite, someone who's older than God and hates everything around him and is just a, a, a force of violence. Mm-hmm. And Paxton was a coward in here. He's just a complete, you know, yeah, toxic masculinity. The unbridled, also, like, like he is like what happens. Heart. He is what happens to toxic masculinity when it becomes immortal, you know, yes, yeah. <laughs> invincible. Yeah, no consequence, <laughs> when you can't no punishment. Shoot it with, kill it with bullets. This is what happens, you know, yeah. and it's wildly entertaining. <laughs> yeah, and Jeanette Goldstein, I, I, the only thing I could think of was that as Vasquez, she had a, she was much better with one liners. She was funnier. Yeah, and when Diamondback is just kind of still. Yeah, and waiting for the opportunity, which is a great name for the character too. You just get this sense of a snake like it, to right. at any moment. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 stuff about them that's really likable. Like, I mean, you know, when uh, I don't know why, but we're with them in that oh, yeah. scene when when they pull over and a cu- and they let in a, 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 a hitchhiker who then um, tries to rob them, and you're with them when he's when Lance Henriksen is like. 
you are going to look so funny when I with no face or whatever the I can't remember the exact line is, but you know, and you're with them and you're like, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the fantasy, right? It's the power fantasy of of the horror film where you, you can identify with the Chainsaw Family or you can identify with Michael Myers for two seconds uh, because kind of would be cool to be unstoppable and to do whatever you like. And then, of course, generally the movies remind you that morality exists and that's the of wrong course. thing to be doing. I don't know anybody who, you know, thinks Jason Voorhees is cool <laughs> by the end of the movie. Well, no, that's what that's what May and, so May and um, Caleb are for yeah, in the movie. Yeah, they show us the reality. May, May is more of the, you know, she's like, you know, accepted the fact that she has to kill in order to survive and Caleb absolutely refuses to. Like the whole crux of the story is that she covers for him for as long as possible and he's, you know, kind of cowardly feeds off of her yeah. at one point. The second time we see it happen, it's, first time it's kind of erotic and then the second time it's like, um, you know, he almost kills her, right? And so she's covering for him until eventually, you know, the family says, listen, you gotta, you gotta hold your own and, uh, or else we're gonna cut you loose. <laughs> yeah. And and that's what that's what the entire um, roadhouse scene is about. Is is you know they go there to um, for Caleb to have a kill. Yeah, which of course it's he, like his he audition, right? Right, and so they let him go. It's interesting you brought up Diamondback, and so like the female characters, you know, other people have pointed this out about Catherine Bigelow's work is that, and and they may be reading too much into it is that, you know, while the characters are strong and they do kind of occupy a, the same sort of power level and, as a, any of the males, like, you know, um, May is, is, has, is, has no less power than Severin does. Or, and, but, they, but it's distinctly a women in a man's world, you know, and then people have said that, you know, she, she, when she does have female characters, they're often about, you know, strong women who exist in a, in, a, in a world dominated by men. Yeah, or defined by men. Defined by yeah. men. And, it, and it's probably true in the case of Near Dark because as, as, you know, as much as it seems to be May's story, it's, it is Jesse's family, right? These women characters belong to Jesse's family. And there's no question about that. He's the patriarch. He makes all the decisions. So, I mean, you can re- you read into that in whatever way you will. You know, I don't, I don't, I doubt that uh, Catherine Bigelow is trying to say something about her experience. You know, being a woman in you know a male-dominated world. But I guess when you make movies, genre, like these kinds of movies, and you are a woman, almost every choice you make becomes politicized. Yeah, and read into. <laughs> I see that? I mean, the 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 worlds she chooses to make movies about are dominated by men. Almost mm-hmm. every time, um, maybe not well. Westerns in general, not just necessarily vampire movies, but both of those genres are predominantly masculine. You know, when you think about vampires, you think about Dracula. When you think about westerns, you think about Gary Cooper, or, you know, John Wayne. Yep. Male figures. Women were homesteaders, and the men went out and did the fighting. And it it felt like a commentary, but it also felt like a, a subversion of of both of those genres by having uh, Caleb be so delicate. Yeah, and, and having may mother him uh it is a romance but Mm -hmm. she is the dominant figure and not just because she knows the rules of her world but because he's drawn to her oh yeah that whole vampire seduction thing but it seems to go deeper like it's a little romeo and juliet story where juliet is the absolutely more self-possessed and sane one we don't even know how old she is it's implied she's not that old as a vampire but she could be just telling him what he wants to hear to draw him closer and the sense that she is 
absolutely his caretaker. I don't think Caleb ever really, I mean, at the very end, he does some heroic stuff, but it's, he's not the prime mover. Yeah. You know, his father fixes him and May protects and shelters him. He's, he's not weak, but he's naive and innocent. And that's in itself is a subversion just by opening with him and having him be our primary character for, you know, five minutes before the family arrives. It really does change the whole expectations of both genres, I think. It does. You are very smart. <laughs> I just mansplained it to Maybe. you. Uh, no, no, it it's is. okay. No, it's, 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 it's true. And, um, uh, you know, maybe that's uh, part of the reason why, you know, uh, women like this movie is that, you know, I mean, it, people, people tend to shit on the ending because it's safe, right? Yeah. And because it's like, uh, I, I remember her, Catherine Bigelow saying in, in the commentary, the director's commentary she did on that Anchor Bay disc from years mm-hmm. ago, is that, that they, had a, they had entertained an ending in which the little sister basically, you know, is seen at the very end, um, you know, steps out into the sun and starts to burn and, you know, whatever, and then they, they, they abandoned that idea and just went, went with this um, sweet romantic ending. And I know that, you know, a lot of people don't like it, um, I feel differently about it now. I didn't really love it when I first saw it either. I feel differently about it now because, you know, the film is what it is, right? Those are the choices that she made, and um, I accept and admire them. What do you think? I felt it ended abruptly. I just wanted more. I think. Right. And that's all. And maybe that's because of the horror movie. It literally freezes. Yeah. Like it's an actual it freeze stops. frame. It yeah. just stops. I know. Yeah. And I remember wondering <laughs> if, you know, if that was because my expectation of horror movies is that there's always one more lunge, one yeah. more monster. But this is a concrete ending. And, and it ends with the family being, with a different family being established, which I like. Yeah. Um, and it ends with the finality that most Westerns have. Not horror movies, right? But but westerns tended to be, with the exception of the Searchers, which still technically has a happy ending. Mm-hmm. You get to leave with order restored, and so because that expectation is there in the genre, I guess I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. But I just wanted it to go on a little longer because I love the atmosphere that I was living in and the world that it had created. So I would be perfectly fine with another, you know, five minutes of May figuring out how to eat again. Yeah. Because that could be fun. I don't know. Yeah, even I'd, I'll take another shootout, and oh, you know, sure, like, yeah. I know it's uh, you know, it, it, and it really does have all that, right? It actually has a, a the, the showdown. it yeah. has a proper showdown in the middle of a road, and you know, yeah, and yeah. Um, um, the shootout at the at the motel is really cool. Like the oh, little the, the those, thing with the beams of sunlight. Yeah, the those little yeah. details that like. Are really neat. Bullets can harm them, but the holes in the the holes, you know, that create the beams of light can. Yeah. And so you figure out a strategy based on that, and it's yeah, visually it's stunning. I mean, I think Michael Mann had done something similar in a shootout or in the Keep. Maybe there's something with beams of light. Oh but yeah, that was the only other reference. It's a great point I film, had. The Keep. No yeah. one talks about yeah. The Keep. It yeah. just yeah. Jurgen Prock now, so good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're never we're never gonna get a, a Blu-ray of that one. I'm pretty sure. I still have the laser disc. Uh, unlikely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, it's a gr- great movie. He does but... not approve. <laughs> Who doesn't uh, approve? Michael Mann. He's what? basically buried it. Really? Apparently, yeah. I I thought it was a rights issue, but Paramount still has it. They just won't do anything. With he it. doesn't like the film. Uh, so I am told that huh. he's, the reason it hasn't happened is that he just it's probably an apocryphal story at this point, but. Right. Apparently, although, you know, this is the guy who goes back and revises literally every movie he ever makes within <laughs> three months of release, he won't revisit The Keep. Like, he's not interested in it. Huh. So I still have the laser disc. Okay. So there. We, we should have a watch party. Really. <laughs> There's got to be a way to put it back into the conversation. It is so weird. 
Uh, but yeah, it came up. We, uh, Aaron Poole did Heat a couple of, of weeks ago, actually, on the on the podcast, and so we ended up talking about the Keep for a few minutes. And he just, there's a Michael Mann movie I've never seen. What do you mean? Oh, I've seen it. I, I'm a big fan. I mean, my obviously my favorite, probably along with everyone else, is Manhunter. Mm. You know, or maybe not. Actually, a it's lot of good. people don't love Manhunter, it's but I'm I a heat love guy it. Myself. You're a Heat. You're, like, see, that most people are. It's like the perfection <laughs> of the thing he was doing. But Manhunter's great. Yeah, I just, yeah, I love Manhunter. It's just, uh, there's something, you know, s- similarly, uh, you know, between, there's a feeling between, like, Near Dark and Manhunter. Yeah. A very similar kind of, like, there's an aesthetic to those movies that... It's the neon-dressed, yeah. de- uh, the De Laurentiis touch. Yeah. Right? Like, he didn't, apparently he didn't interfere in the making of these films. And DG, I'm not even sure they produced Near Dark. They might have just picked it up. I... I know their name is on it. Yeah. 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 And yeah. that's why it almost didn't get released theatrically because by the time it opened, it They were going, paid. they were tanking. They were going bankrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I saw it And it was in theaters for two weeks. Barely lasted, yeah. I saw it at the Uptown. Oh, two did or you three see it at the Uptown? Basement. Not in the big room. One of the, one of the lower rooms. Oh, my God. Uh, really? I loved that theater. it was still with an theater. audience that just didn't know what to make of it, which was great. Yeah. You know, that tension that comes from people being in a room and just going, is this what a... What's it doing? I don't get it. And it was terrific because I think they just weren't ready for a Western touch to it. They just, you know, the, the posters were really yep. heavy on horror. They were. And, and there was a lot of sunlight and a lot of, you know, blood and scars. Uh, in, the fo- in the press photos that ran in Fangoria, I mean, I, I think yeah. they put Paxton on the cover, half his face pulled off. Yep. Yeah, with the burn face. Yeah. Yeah. And so you go in for a horror you movie. You saw that at the Uptown? Yeah, yeah. Like as a rerun? No. No. no really? I'm old. Oh my uh, God! Really? Yeah, I would. I had been... to watch it on video. Like that's where it ended up getting, oh, you know, gaining so you most never... of its. Okay. I mean, I was. I did not see so it. I you know, been, I was nineteen. Uh, I am um, summer. I remember yeah. really vividly. I'm forty three, so I'm a little younger. Okay. I, I, you know, probably was not allowed to go to see horror movies, uh, but I was allowed to rent whatever I wanted from the mom and pop video right. store and. That's how I saw so Near Dark. So you saw it pan and scan? I, I missed the like Uptown. the original version? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I used to see Blade Runner at the Uptown at, at midnight, midnight on, on on New Year's, nice. you know, every year, all the time. It was, and it's still, it's still to this day my New Year's tradition. So even after the Uptown closed, stopped doing it, I still watch Blade Runner every year on New Year's. Aww. And I used to go alone and people would say, like, you know, what are you, what are you doing for New Year's? Why don't you come and hang out? And I'm like, nope. I got plans. <laughs> and they'd be like, well, why don't we come along? We can all bring, you know, alcohol and, and drinking alcohol in the movie theater. I'm like, sorry, it's a solitary activity. It's, it's yeah. a solitary activity. No, I totally get that. <laughs> um, but back to Near Dark. Um, we'll get there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's an unusual film. And she obviously, Catherine and Eric, abandoned most of the conventions of, that we know about vampires with sure. the exception of uh, uh, them being, uh, ha- you know, sun being harmful. To, to them um, and then their immortality and all that. But the crosses and the garlic and all that stuff is, you know, is they just dispensed with it and decided to do something more modern. And uh, yeah, Famously, the word vampire has never been mentioned, right? It's that's just right. A, and I, I love those films. I love the movies that, like um, 28 Days Later, where it's kind of zombie but not really. It doesn't have to be if you don't want it to be. You can yeah. add your own stuff to it. We recognize it as, as genre buffs. That oh, it's they're vampires. Yeah, it doesn't need to be said. Oh, can't can't eat food, has to eat, drink blood. Transmission yeah. through bites. Fine, yeah. good. That gotcha. stuff's yeah, that yeah. stuff's all there. The all most consistent, basic things, right? Are yeah. there for us? But it also it lets you play with the idea. Um, 
that I that I've always loved about these about these sort of sideways genre movies, which is that this could be the thing that the mythology came from. Yeah. So it's always been around. No one really sees it. Anybody who encounters it dies. So why would you ever know that they're the vampires are real and this is what inspired Dracula and all the other stuff? So they could have the lore. It's just irrelevant to them because they know what the real thing is and that's them. And also the idea that they're driving around in an RV is just so... <laughs> I know. I know because, you know, we're used to... These Victorian frocked, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like Arriving where, in where fog and coming out <laughs> like, oh, I was a dog a minute ago. Don't worry about it. I, <laughs> Don't worry about yeah, it. Where did your but pants it, go? It, eh. But it was. It's also very like you know, like interview with a vampire, and like you're, you know, it's 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 sort of like dignified and and sexy yeah. and and beautiful to be and and desirable yeah. to be a vampire and to have immortality. Whereas this was a depiction of how actually how shitty it is, yeah. and how they're living hand to mouth. And they're basically been traveling around, you know, uh, America for well, the last at least, uh, 150 years, right? By the time, right? Of, well, let's say 100. He fought for the South, right? right? Yeah, and he he says, "I like to pass through here at least once every 50 years." Right. And, um, and they're just kind of like living, yeah, living hand to mouth, and and uh, and it's messy. and it's not easy, and it's yeah. dirty, and and they uh, are always in a rush, uh, you know, racing against the dawn. Mm. Um, and I think, um, you know, Catherine said she had, she had rehearsed with them by, um, you know, putting, putting all of the actors in a, in a, in like a warehouse and doing these, um, these, uh, routines where she would time them, uh, at, for how long it would take them to like blackout windows. She would give oh, them, cool. yeah, she would give them like, you know, they would give them whatever tools they needed, like duct tape and tinfoil and all this stuff. And she would, you know, run these drills where they would have to, as fast as possible, black out all the windows in this space, and they, they got it down to, like, under two minutes. And she just observed them, and she observed how almost immediately everyone chose a role. Everyone, you know, okay, I'm going to be the duct tape guy, and I'm going to be the, you know. And so then by the time that she put them in these small spaces, like she, by the time she put them in the Winnebago or in, a, in the, um, the shitty motel or whatever— they would. It was like second nature to them to like. Oh my God! You know, here comes the sun. We we have to you know black it out to protect ourselves. So. Right. Which it would be. It would be second nature by the you know, yeah fourth nature, whatever it is that's a hundred years old. I think that's yeah one of the things that's uh, so so attractive about that film is just this sort of like the the family it, itself. Um, they just feel very well established and they, like they've been they've been in this together for for a long time. Yeah. Last time through, I was just thinking, you know, like, why doesn't Severin never try to take a run at Jesse? And then I realized, no, he probably did. Uh, he Paxton, put him in his place. Yeah, because yeah. Paxton has this little deferential thing he does around Henriksen, and it's almost invisible. But there are moments when Jesse moves forward and he'll just kind of slide out of the way. Like, it's, it's, inter, it's ingrained mm-hmm. in him that he just doesn't want to piss him off for whatever reason, and it feels like it's because he did once and it went badly for everybody. <laughs> But he's also not a leader. Yeah, he's, he does he's not like, have any leadership qualities. He be, is too unhinged. He's the hype man. Like he's yeah. happy to be the guy who comes in and tells you how he's going to kill you, and then lets Jesse do most of the work. Yeah, and it, he's so good at it. It is it's right. A I mean, it's just so amazing to watch him. Uh, you know, in in especially in that barroom scene, it's just so wild to watch him and just little things like taking the glasses off of. Stealing the trucker's glasses and put putting them on, and then the the little like pushing it, it up to the brow, you know, of his nose, and um, 
Yeah. It's just also beautiful. It's that's I guess the the lovely, amazing gifts that actors bring to movies that you could never predict. And when you're assembling a group of people and creative people to all come together to make something unique and original, that's the stuff that you're hoping that they're going to show up with. Yeah, and they're right? all comfortable with each other too, like in the in the, yeah. in character and in the scenes. The um, like Pazdar is pretty. No, he's not one note, but I think the, the the nature of Caleb is to be withdrawn and 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 def, not deferential. But he is a he's a beta character in this sort of movie. Like he imagines himself a cowboy, but I think he just likes the hat. Yeah, he's, yeah. You know, he's immediately yanked into a world where he he's Jeffrey Hunter in The Searchers, right? He's the yeah. kid who isn't prepared for any of this, and he'll be a man on the other end. But he's also not going to be the hero. He's just going to grow up a little. Yeah, and that kind of shift in perspective puts us on the back foot as the audience because we keep waiting for him to save the day and it never really happens. Mm-hmm. Although he does save May. He does. I mean, end, he yeah. does what is ultimately... Ne- like, that's what I mean. Yeah. He does the thing that needs to be done, but he's not the guy who ends the whole war. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And um, there is a tension that comes from him not being the primary mm-hmm. uh, actor in any scene. And he's... You know, it's it's um, to to bring in the Lost Boys for a second. Mm-hmm. It's like Jason Patrick does a much better job with that role because technically he's the hero, he's the action movie guy, and he's going to save the day. But he also is much more watchful and confused and curious, and he's just doing more acting, I think, yep. in his role as the new guy in the in the band in the troop. Yeah, Caleb feels a lot more like a damsel in distress. <laughs> yeah, he's there to be saved by yeah. by May and by yes. his father, and that yes. <laughs> that flip really works, right? Because yep. it's something we recognize from westerns rather than horror, and it's that argument that the movie is having with what genre it is in any given minute that makes it so exciting. Because you realize in the end, it's both at once. Mm-hmm. You're just on this. You're you're tipped on the razor's edge of wherever it's going to go next. And it becomes incredibly unpredictable. I mean, you know the the yeah the roadhouse scene is going to be a massacre, but you don't know what kind of massacre. Yeah, because <laughs> we've never seen people who don't need weapons in one of these scenes before. Yeah, and that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you get that amazing tension of Jesse being shot in point blank in the chest, and right just in the chest, the bullet out, yeah. or coughing it up because it's that's the other thing that I love so much. It's not a comfortable process. Yeah, right? like they still feel pain. They still feel. Hunger and all this, all the, all the most base urges, but when you get shot, it really hurts, and you'd rather it not happen again. So you come up with the most intimidating way of showing it off. You know, yeah, this, you can do this all day. I can do this all day. It's not going to kill me, but I really would like you to stop. <laughs> and the menace involved in that, the sense that you're in a room with somebody who is not only way more powerful than you, but isn't going to stop. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's such a great. He just he spits the bullet out. Specifically, he spits it out. And tucks it into yeah. the guy's shirt pocket and then him. gives him a little pat on the chest, like, yeah. nice try. You know? <laughs> yeah. And we never see any of the other traditional stuff, wooden stakes, what have you. No. There's no we, reference really to God except for like a couple of – there's a couple of small things like the, the name of the motel is called the Godspeed Motel. Right. I'm sure that was deliberate. And um, there is there are some crosses on uh, a revolver. You know, I think it's Jesse's revolver. I think there's so, like yeah. a he just keeps them. there's 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 some crosses on it. Remember, but other than that, you know, yeah, it's purely ornamental, right? They don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you know they um, they're not. Uh, I, I like that about it. You know, because uh, you know, especially at this point, 
we had seen that done so many times, and it, it was just nice to see something original. I guess maybe that's one of the reasons why I like Martin so much. Oh, yeah. Another, <laughs> it's another one where— Because it's another kind of oddball vampires— Slash zombie, yeah, it maybe. Yeah, might not even be a vampire movie at all, right? It might just be someone who I believes. I think it that. is, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a person who believes he's a vampire. Yeah, but it, that's what I mean. Like, it's teased. Yeah. There's never any confirmation and there's no supernatural activity at all. It might just be that he thinks he's a vampire, which yes. is just as bad. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's Romero having it both ways, which is just so great because he was never one for explanations anyway. Yeah. But just having us live entirely in the character's head for that whole movie— it's just—it's oppressive. You feel it. Yeah. And yeah. Just oh, maybe. I was just thinking about how you know how they don't say vampires in *Near Dark*. They never say zombies in *Return* in, a, in, in um, *The Living Dead* the, films. Yeah. In *The Living Night of the Living Dead*, they never say zombie. I think they're called ghouls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember asking George, um, where you know, that horrible question. Where did you get the idea? Yeah. <laughs> where did you get the idea for that movie? And he said. I stole it from Richard Matheson. Oh, I am legend. I am yeah. legend, which is my favorite horror story of all time, right? And he's just like, yeah, I just, um, I just substituted the vampires for these ghouls, and and you know the rest is history. Yeah, but it's <laughs> a different experience because you know, you know, I am legend. They talk, and, yes, and depriving, and, and they're so scary. <laughs> they're yeah. it's so funny because. The Living Dead didn't talk. We're getting a little off topic, but yeah, the Living Dead do- don't talk for like the longest time, right? After that, they they don't talk until like Return of the Living Dead, when Dan O'Bannon right. make you know gives them a voice, and suddenly they're wisecracking, and you know send more paramedics. Right, and, right. Uh, <laughs> the revisionist zombie movie, yeah, right? The one that tells you right up top that Night of the Living Dead was real and yes. incorporates that. And and so you know, you know, apparently they're not scary anymore once you make them talk, but you know. You know, it's not the case with I Am Legend, right? And I Am Legend, I think, is still one of the one of the most important horror stories ever ever written, and um, one of the scariest. Still hasn't been done right. I it's was ma- about to say it's three been made three and no times, right. and nobody's yeah. got it right. I, I don't think, know that you can now. I think the closest would be Last Man on Earth, but like it's still not really. Scott was going to do it. Mm-hmm. With, um, with Schwarzenegger. Yes. Right? I've read that Exactly. Script. I saw the storyboards for it. And Rob Bottin was going to do all the vampires. Okay. Like, how fucking cool would that have been? Did they, were they keeping the naked thing at that point? Uh, well, that was good question. The I don't remember seeing the, them naked. The yeah. All of the vampires, all of the whatever they are, the undead, uh, they don't like clothes because they are. They, it was the one thing they kept for the Will Smith version, but they never explained it. But in the yeah, yeah. in the story, in the script that I read, which I think was the Mark Prokofovich script, okay, it circulated in the early two thousands, I guess. Yeah, um, the Living Dead were all hairless and naked, and it had something to do with uh, a regenerative. Did, um, the, the the contagion, whatever it is, was some sort of. It was it was changed to a cure for cancer in the Will Smith version. Yes. But what it was was some sort of uh, platelet disorder thing that regenerates leukemia patients' right. blood. And then it it's so hyperactive that you lose all your external tissue. So they don't have eyelashes. They don't have hair. Supposedly fingernails and teeth also. But I think they gave up on that because it was impractical. But basically the idea was that Arnold Schwarzenegger would be <laughs> super geneticist running away from naked people. <laughs> It's like, you, you okay, read when this, you put it that way, it's, I don't want to make that movie I know, either. I know. It's like, how did they think this was going to work? You can't show this. Well, this okay, but I think the storyboards I for that movie that I had seen, I saw it at a friend's house in L.A. Mm. who 
bastard who has them. <laughs> Lucky bastard who has them. And um, th- that movie looks cool. There, mm-hmm. I don't remember being it being Arnold Schwarzenegger and a bunch of naked uh, vampires. Um, but you know the it it looked like a true to very true to the book. You know, okay. um, and that is yeah. like the thing about I Am Legend as a novel that is so disturbing is that you're inside the human's head all the time. You're, you're mm-hmm. just with him, but also. The undead know him. They yes. all talk to him. Yes. Uh, come on out, Neville. You know, like just the sense that they have all the, the time in the world him. and they're just going to be right outside his door waiting. Yeah, and, that, and of course the big, the big reveal, the big turn at the end. You know, sure. whereas you know where 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 we've been complicit with the the threat to their survival. Yeah. The entire time, right? He's the vampire. He's you know he he's is the legend. Yeah, night. he's yeah. the monster and. What a great story. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Near Dark picks up on a little of the intensity of that, I think. Mm-hmm. It comes close to the sense of loneliness and isolation, but it's from the vampire's perspective instead of the hero. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are just constantly on the move, constantly afraid. You know, Neville checking the perimeter of his house every morning and making sure nothing is going wrong is the same as, as everybody taping up their windows yeah. in the motel every night. It's the same kind of learned behavior. Yeah. And that was the, that's the thing that they also both feel really dusty. Because the original yeah. I Am Legend, the, the plague is never explained, but it comes from a dust storm somewhere. Yep. And you just see all the smoke and all the all the the beast. I'm, I'm assuming it's beast smoke in half of you know, like every the, the Ridley Scott look that Bigelow uses to sort of show the isolation by showing you how much space there is and then filling it with smoke so it mm-hmm. reflects and has shadows. That thing feels very much like that kind of desolation, like they're moving through a dead world and they it's not them who killed it. They're just the the luckiest parasites. Right. Yeah. Speaking of the way that it lo- the movie looks, mm-hmm. you can really tell that her, you know, that Catherine and her had a, had a really um, deeply collaborative relationship with her DP, right? Because it looks, it's got a painterly quality oh, yeah. to it. You know, it's 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 so beautiful. I think I think she she has a background. I want to say, and I'm sure somebody on the internet will correct me. In short order, uh, I want to say that she has a background in, in fine art, like that she was a painter before she think, started directing. And I so, think it was fine art photography, possibly. Was it? Yeah. Maybe, and Maybe that's how The Loveless happened. Yeah, and so that's, you know, obviously, um, you know, in, in influenced the way that that film looks. I mean, it's just... And then, oh, can you imagine all the... All of those nights, like it's <laughs> yeah, a long shoot. Oh my god! I think I, don't, I think that the 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 most of the shoot was nights, and then they were chasing that magic hour for as much as they could to get those beautiful sunrise, sunset, yep. oh, those sure, yeah. those beautiful shots of twilight. Um, you know where that they only you know you know they only last far five minutes yeah. before they're gone, and so they were there were a lot of scenes that take place during twilight. Mm-hmm. So. I can't imagine how that must have been a very difficult and grueling shoot. <laughs> oh, I think, yeah. And for those of you who are younger, this is before CG and color timing were what they are now. So you are seeing what they saw. There's not much. I mean, chemically, you could do some stuff, but it's pretty much what you grab in the moment on a film with this budget. Like, they didn't have time to color correct a lot of it, and they certainly didn't have the budget to to create landscapes that were being affected by the lighting. It's... Mm-hmm. It's shoot it. Maybe there's a blue filter. We shot it. Yeah. Like, that's it. Yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. you get. It's, you know, and the practical effects, too. Like, everything mm-hmm. you see is real and built. She did that for $5 million. Yeah. $5 million, and she had 
at least two cars exploding, and one of them is a big, huge truck <laughs> that explodes. You know, there's the oh wait, the RV, oh, the RV on fire. and then and explode, the, yeah. there's the but there's the so the the big semi yeah. that that you know the showdown you know between Severin um, and Caleb drive. Is he he's driving the truck? Who's driving the truck? <laughs> I think it's Caleb and his. Yeah, and so there's any that that uh, vehicle blows up, and then of course at the end the to, sorry to spoil it for <laughs> those of you who haven't seen it, um, it the uh, station wagon or whatever that uh, yeah, Jesse and Diamondback are, are are driving to also blows up in flames, and <laughs> you know there's some really subversive stuff too with the speaking of the the station wagon, you know when uh, Homer, you know jumps out of the car chasing after the little girl, you know, and, you know, he bursts into flames and stuff. And you sometimes forget that you're watching a small child burst into flames. Yeah, we didn't really talk about Homer. (laughs) Right, and he's he's so lonely. He's so desperate for a companion his size, and he's— you know he's he's kind of like in I think he's in love with May and is super upset when May brings in a companion oh, of yeah, her no, own right an appropriate arrival, yeah. yes and so it, you know and just freaks out and because he's the wild card card of the bunch and just it's it's so sad you know he's so desperate for for a companion his size because no grown woman is ever going to want him <laughs> and but then also there's this idea that he's like. Decades, hundreds, possibly hundreds of years old, and wanting to have a physical relationship with like an eight-year-old girl. Yeah, like no, there's some really, really subversive ideas in there. Yeah. Like, and the kid, like <laughs> Joshua Miller is fantastic too. Like, yeah, he's, not only is he he was amazing in The River's Edge. Yeah, I, that's yeah. where I'd first seen him. And, yeah, same. And he was sort of snotty in that, but here there's a cruelty and a and a rage that he's hinting at. That yeah, we don't really know that much about Homer other than. He's older than he looks. Like that's clearly the the bio. We know he, we know must, how much older he, he is. was. Turned obviously. I the way I see it is that he was he was probably turned by Severin, and Diamondback felt the need to kind of mother him and Protect take him. yeah and like bring him into the fold. And <laughs> yeah, but the weirdness of being raised with these killers and and it's unclear like he's matured but his body hasn't so some part of him has gone through puberty like he experiences desire we know that sure it's just so disturbing to see it coming from an eight-year-old like or someone who looks like he's eight yeah and it's just it's probably the the i mean it's not the only innovation the film makes but it's like to my mind it, there is no Kristen dunn's performance in interview with a vampire without this even though mm-hmm. they're worlds apart this is how you do it. Like yeah. this is Enrico Colantoni auditioning for Galaxy Quest, and then everybody just being given his tape to be a Thermian. It's like, no, yeah. this is what you do. <laughs> this is where you find it, and it's a great throwaway role, right? Because he's he is just a kind of a, this amorphous threat for the entire film. Yeah. He doesn't like Caleb, but Caleb could probably kick him through a wall if he had to. <laughs> but, but you get this sense actually that he's older, instead, right? Like you, he's playing him. You get this sense sometimes that he's older than like when Jeanette. When he might be older Jen- than Jesse. I yeah, uh, I don't know. Like um, you, when they're when he's trying to watch television, when he's got the you know the little girl in his in their room, and he's trying to watch gel- television, and Diamondbacks like trying to get his attention, and he's just like seethes over his shoulder, like what? Yeah. Like <laughs> why do I have to answer to you? You know, like it's uh, 
Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a shit situation to be in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess eternity is not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> right. Like, it's the, it's the dark side and the, and the cruelest thing you can do is turn a child. I, I, that's shown up a few other places. It since. has. But, um, well, I mean, let the right one in. Let the right sure. one in. It's about, you know, children, you know, a child vampire and having to wrestle with uh, similar kind of loneliness, like existential loneliness. Right. And, and manipulating other children into... Doing your bidding, being your servant. Which is super creepy, oh, knowing yeah. that she's potentially hundreds of years old and she's having these kind of like quasi-pedophilic kind of fantasy relationships yeah. with other children. It's really subversive stuff. Oh, yeah. And actually, <laughs> like on second viewing, too, the performances just get sharper and, and, yep. and meaner, more predatory. Even. Yeah. You see her pulling strings and what she's up to. Um, there was a film a couple of years ago that sort of riffs on Martin, The Transfiguration. Oh, yeah. The, yes, that's right. Um, it's about a... A kid in uh, Coney a, Island yes, who a, thinks a, he's a vampire. Right. It's about a small... It's a black boy who thinks he's yeah. a vampire. And yeah, it's a really interesting film. Yeah. Really, criminally underseen. I think a lot yeah. of people slept on it. I think it had a small, it very for a small week in Toronto, release. I remember, yeah. 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 It's tough. Like, I mean, Near Dark played for two weeks in theaters before... Before it was pulled, and then um, you know, people people. It's funny how people change their minds about movies like that. You know, uh, remember to bring up the thing one last time sure. when it was first released. Uh, Roger Ebert called it pornographic violence, and panned it right. And then, of course, you know, years later, it took back everything he ever said about the thing and said I was wrong about that movie. Yeah. It's actually a fucking masterpiece. And <laughs> kind of is. Yeah, and I think that, you know, um, Near Dark has is, is kind of flown under a lot of people's radars, and, you know, I really would like more people to revisit it and to see, like, you know, this truly original, haunting uh, vampire western directed by a woman. Uh, a lot of people, I'm surprised often how few people have seen it. I think it's that age gap, right? Where people yeah. our age saw it theatrically or on video when it was around, and then it just, the rights got snarled, and so it just disappeared for a little bit, and that was enough to separate it out. And so now, when it resurfaces, it's like, oh, that old movie? It's like, well, yeah, but RoboCop is that old movie. They're the same age. It just doesn't it's mean true. one is less valid than the other. They're both equally influential. It's just... You know, it's like the Velvet Underground thing. Everybody who saw Near Dark went off and made a vampire movie. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know about the Velvet Underground because people stopped talking about them, but they're still around. Like, the influence is still there. Right. Uh, I was trying to figure out if there's a direct Near Dark link to Riot Girls, but Riot Girls is much, I think it's literally brighter. It's a sunnier film. Yeah. It's a road movie, I guess, is there's that. But, yeah. But is there anything from... Well, I mean, I chose... I chose a desert eagle <laughs> because they have a desert eagle in in um, in near dark. But the 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 only horror film because Riot Girl, Girls is not a horror movie. The only a horror movie that it's even kind of tangentially connected to, oddly, is Gary Sherman's Dead and Buried, <laughs> and uh, it's a you know kind of an obscure uh, 1981 horror film, and um, I it had a huge impact on me when I was a kid um, when I would go to the video store and, you know, look at all of those VHS and beta tapes with that glorious red dot on it that said horror and I could rent whatever I wanted. There were several, it was like my version of a mar movie marquee, right? And there were several um, movies that had these really cool covers 
that it took me a while to get around to, but Dead and Buried was was one of them. And I watched it, and I just I loved how strange it was amidst all the other kinds of uh, movies that were coming out at that time. Uh, there's this weird kind of Lovecraftian, almost Lovecraftian story about this strange town uh, by the sea where all this weird stuff is happening, where like tourists are disappearing and kind of re- being and, and, and reanimated, being reanimated. And, um, and, and so when I was set out to make Riot Girls, I was on a phone call with Gary Sherman because he and I are, are good friends and he was giving me advice on, you know, going into my first feature film. And um, he, you know, and I asked him for permission to set the story in the town of Potter's Bluff because I actually wanted to make, you know, a direct connection between the two films to, to almost as if to say this is the exact same town only decades later. Mm-hmm. And so we went and we found a, a small waterfront town with a very similar terrain as this, the, the California city that they shot that, that movie in. And so I, I, because it's not a horror movie and, but, and horror is in my DNA, um, it's, it, it, horror is built into Riot Girls in, in, in many ways like that. You know, whether, whether you know, uh, I intended to or not. So it does take place in the same town, and um, I wanted it to be like the same cursed town, right? Because right? I, I love that idea of like connecting connecting those films. And I know that Gary Sherman said that um, Guillermo del Toro told him once that uh, his movie Deathline is the reason that made him want to go into the horror business. Okay. Right? Cannibals in the London and that, that Yeah, uh, a.k.a. Raw Meat. Right. And that in, and that in in every movie he makes, there's some reference to 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 Deathline. And I don't know if anybody's ever done this. Made like went and watched all of Guillermo's stuff at least up until Pan's Labyrinth. I, I haven't. And, and to look to for look the Deathline yeah. references. So he told him, you know, this movie, you know, your movie is you know reason why I wanted to one of the reasons why I wanted to make films. And uh, for for Gary Sherman, um, I think it was. Uh, Oh, I'm spacing now. I'm no, sorry. Yeah, I'm spacing on the movie that, for him, what which film it was that made him, you know, want to go into, you know, telling horror stories and, and for me, Dead and Buried, Dead and Buried is one of the obscure horror movies that made me want to go into the horror business. <laughs> and April yeah. Wolf got you first on that one. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if anyone listening wants to hear. Ivanka, talk about Dead and Buried. It's on Switchblade Sisters, which mm-hmm. is a terrific episode and one that I really enjoyed listening to before this conversation. It's like, oh, I wish I'd gotten there first. It was a fun one. And yeah, hey, man, we got to talk movie. about Near Dark, Oh, man. Near Dark like... is great, too. And they're both, I mean, weirdly enough, I would have thought Near Dark was far more well-known, but it turns out they're not. They're, they're kind of roughly obscured together. These, yes. These two films from the Yeah, 80s, that's why I picked the them. 80s. I mean, <laughs> I mean, anybody, you know, like any, you, you can... It's easy to choose the thing or to choose, like, you know, a Criterion film or some Night of the Hunter. You know what I mean? Like, it's easy to choose those movies. Everybody knows why they're important. And and so I thought it would be more fun to pick two movies for these podcasts that are lesser known, um, but no less important in the not only the progression of the genre, but in in terms of my inspiration, you know, in in my for my career. Well, thanks for banging the drum because I'm glad we got to talk about it. <laughs> no well. problem. It's my pleasure. I learned a few things. Thank you. Yeah, I need to be. 
<laughs> Who knows if they're true? My thanks to Jovanka Vukovic, whose first feature, Riot Girls, is available today on VOD platforms in the U.S. and Canada, and you should check it out. And if you haven't seen it, you should catch up to XX sometime. It's a really good horror anthology, and Yvanka's segment, starring Natalie Brown as a woman trying to hold her family together in the face of a strange wasting disease, is rock solid. And you know what? Check out The Transfiguration, too. Michael O'Shea did a great job on that one, and if you're looking for another left-field take on the vampire mythology, it's a good one. Also, also, both Natalie Brown and Michael O'Shea have done episodes of this podcast, so, you know, look those up as well. And while you're downloading things, go grab that episode of Switchblade Sisters. It's really good. You can find Yovanka on Twitter at Yovanka Vukovic, all one word. And while Near Dark is currently out of print, there are still Blu-rays and DVDs floating around in the world. You can find them in used stores, you can get them on Amazon, and they're pretty great. It's also available to stream in the U.S. on a service called FlixFling, which, no, I've never heard of it either. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're pretty good. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. See you next week.